the unseen hand of God is so evident when we look back. Sometimes it's not evident when we're in the moment, but it's evident when we look back. The book that you carry with you called the Bible is a book of impossible situations where God stepped in and did an incredible work that was so incredible that no one could take credit for it except the Lord. And the credit and the glory went to him, whether it's the story of the children of Israel or the story of the church. God takes the impossible and makes it a impossible reality. I want to ask you to turn to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and that's the fifth book in the New Testament part of your Bible. There are two parts of the Bible, uh, but one book. And that's the old and the new. The old is the old covenant that God made with the nation of Israel and the Jews. The new is the new covenant God has made with his church, his people of every tribe and of every tongue. And you can't have one without the other. You got to have both because you won't know who Messiah is if you don't read the Old Testament. When Jesus says, I'm him, how do we know if we don't know the Old Testament? That's just a plug for people that are thinking the Old Testament is not worth reading. That was free, didn't cost you anything. You don't have to put anything extra in the plate for that. I want to go back and do some principles that John Bassanio taught me a long time ago in just a few minutes about how we can make things a reality in light of studying the first century church. But there are two or three things I want to say first. First of all, what God has asked us to do requires faith and works. It requires faith and works. It doesn't just require faith. Faith has to be acted on. We have to obey and do what God has spoken to us out of his word. That's where the Great Commission comes in, that, that he has been given all authority, and we are to go into all the nations, and he is with us always. So when I do what God has asked me to do and understand that that requires faith, I understand that there's a platform on which I'm standing, and that is that Jesus has all authority. The authority's not mine. The authority's not yours. Jesus has all authority. Where? In heaven and in earth. Now, just think about this. That kind of covers it, doesn't it? Uh, hello? That kind of covers it, doesn't it? If it's in heaven or in earth, if it's anything you can see and beyond that's light years away, or if it's on earth, that kind of covers it. He's got all authority. He holds it all into place. I was reading a, a story this week about a child that was looking up into the stars out in the country where you didn't have all the diffused light and seeing the stars and the heavens and the Milky Way and everything else. And uh, she just turned and said to her mom, if it looks like that from here, what does it look like from there? Have you thought about all that we cannot see that God sees and God knows and God controls? He has all authority. So if he tells us to do something, we do it in his authority, not in our strength. Secondly, by the way, let me give you this quote. John Stott said, the fundamental basis of all Christian missionary enterprise is the universal authority of Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth. Second thing, 
We are to make disciples of all nations. We are to make disciples of all nations. Now what that means is all nations. In fact, in the Greek, it means all nations. In the original Aramaic that Jesus spoke, it means all nations. In French, in Spanish, in Latin, in any language you want, it means all nations. Every tribe and every tongue. Here's why. The gospel is not a closed group of people sitting around meditating on the Bible with people that only look like them. The gospel is for all tribes and all tongues and all nations. We, we send mission teams to Uganda. We've been, Terry and I have been in South Africa. We've been in places all over the world. We have church plants in Israel. Why? Because the gospel is for all nations. We've been to Cuba and to Mexico and to Romania and all these places around the world. Why? Because the gospel is for all nations. It is not for us to just sit around and say, boy, I'm so glad I'm saved. It is for us to do something with our salvation. All nations, every nation, we are saved to share the gospel. The NIV says, make disciples of all nations. New American says, of every nation. You can choose the word. It's not, there's no loophole. That's why we're planning churches in Canada. That's why we're in Puerto Rico. That's why we're in Israel, and that's why we're in strategic places across America, because we want to reach the nations. Do you realize that on one subway stop, one subway stop, one line in New York, there are 139 people groups in a five-mile radius, and not one evangelical church in the midst of them. I talked to a pastor who is planning a church there with a pastor that wants to start a church at every stop on that line so that they can begin to reach the people groups that are gathered in just a short stretch in Manhattan. So here's some principles that I learned from John Bassanio. I learned to give credit uh, to guys like John Bassanio because I'm not smart enough to think this stuff up on my own. Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 is where all of this is built out of. First of all, for the first century church, it was geographically impossible. Everything I'm about to tell you is impossible apart from God. This will not work. This will not happen. Changing the world from Albany, Georgia, reaching the nations cannot happen on our own. That's why we cooperate with God in our faith and in our works. It's geographically impossible. Listen. Israel is a land bridge, and that's where the last great battle will be fought in what is called the Valley of Armageddon. It's a land bridge. Nations through the centuries and millennia have crossed through Israel going back and forth to control that part of the world. You have to go through Israel to get anywhere, just it seems like. Napoleon said the, the Valley of Armageddon is the greatest battlefield layout that has ever been designed. God did that. You think Napoleon did discover that. God, when he created the world, said, this is where I'll start it, this is where I'll end it. I'll end it right here. It's a land bridge. But these people are so geographically removed from most of Africa, from all of Europe, they, they, it's impossible. Secondly, it was physically impossible. They didn't have a TSA that wasn't getting paid. They didn't have any airplanes. 
They didn't have any massive ships. They didn't have internet. They didn't have a printing press. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have laptops. It was just them. They didn't even own individual copies of the scripture. They would have to go to the synagogue to have the scriptures read to them. So it is impossible physically for them to get from point A to point B quickly. Now they could travel, but it would have taken months, if not years, to get across. By the way, it was physically impossible, but God knew that Jesus would come in the fullness of time. He sends the Romans to take control of the world as one of the greatest empires in history, and the Romans are the first group of people that build a massive interstate road system by which the gospel is carried to the world. Every road that the gospel went down, the Romans had paved that road and made it possible. They didn't know they were doing it for the church. God knew it. God used the devil's dollars to do his work. I just love that. I mean, when I've been to Rome and I see those roads and I see all those idols and images and those facilities built to the great Roman Empire, and I think, <laughs> you know, God's just got to be sitting calling some angels together and say, watch this. They're going to pave that road right there. Uh, you know, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 years, I think I'm going to send Paul down that road and have him plant a church right there. Won't that be something? And the devil's going, he got me again. Thirdly, it was numerically impossible. Numerically impossible. A at this time, there may have been maybe a thousand followers of Christ probably closer to 500, but it was numerically impossible. There's no way you could take a, a group of people smaller than the people that are members of this church and say, now, in a matter of two generations, we're going to change the world. Because we'd all sit here and say, how are we going to do that? It was numerically impossible to say, well, some can't go, some physically can't go, some are not old enough to go. How are we going to make all these changes? It was numerically impossible. It was socially impossible. Socially impossible. I mean, these are Jews, and they are hated by the Romans. They are despised by the Romans. They're hated by the world. They're slaves in a dictatorial system. And yet Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, Not many wise, mighty, or noble, but God has called the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God would use the nobodies of this world to tell the world about somebody who could change their life. Now, this is when I was thinking about this, I, it just hit me. It's just like God to take a church like Sherwood and give us a worldwide ministry so that we are forever reminded that we aren't good enough, wise enough, or rich enough to pull this off. When you see the church we plant, when you see the hopes, listen, it's just like God to take a church like this in the, we're not in Atlanta, we're not in Orlando, we're not in Dallas, we're not in a strategic city in this world. We're forgotten even by the legislature of the state of Georgia. They don't even know we exist. It's just like God. Just like 
my God, to say, I'm going to go to Albany, Georgia, and show the world what I can do with a willing people. Now, if that doesn't get you excited, you can't say amen more than a mumble. You need an electric shot in your britches. <laughs> it was legally impossible. In just a matter of time, well, first of all, because the, the, the Jewish leaders didn't want this message out, so they ruled against it. They had already killed the founder, Jesus, they were after the disciples. It's legally impossible. Uh, you had to confess Caesar as Lord. And here's a church that's saying Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. They are being persecuted and martyred. They are finding opposition. I mean, it was against the law to share your faith. By the way, it's not against the law for us to share our faith, but some of us don't do a real good job of sharing it. I mean, nobody arrests us for sharing our faith. But they are arresting people even today in nations across this world for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was logistically impossible. Verse 8, Acts 1-8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, what's the strategy? How are they going to get this done? They're going to go to an upper room and they're going to pray. There's a novel idea. They're going to pray and in a prayer environment, God is going to send the Holy Spirit upon them and they're going to have power to be witnesses. The power was not in a strategy that they learned. The power was not in a system or a program the power was in the Spirit of God inside of them where they could not help but speak of what they had seen and of what they had heard. James Montgomery Boyce said, The English Bible translator J.B. Phillips wrote a book entitled Your God is Too Small. By the way, it's one of the first books I ever bought. Uh, that title, which is also a statement might well be spoken of many of today's professing Christians who, in their ignorance of Scripture, inevitably scale God down to their own limited and fallible perspectives. We need to capture a new elevated sense of who God is, particularly in regard to His grace in saving sinners. Amen? I mean, we need to see who God is. Some people, we just quit praying for it. Well, you, you know, it's not going to do any good. They're never going to be saved. You don't know that. You're not all-knowing. You you're not sitting on the throne of heaven, and you don't know who God has said to the Holy Spirit. Sick them. We need a bigger view of God. He's not a bellboy. He's not an ecclesiastical bellhop. He's the living Lord God. He has all authority in heaven and earth. And Jesus is at his right hand. And the Holy Spirit is inside of you so that you can know that when God sends you, he equips you. He gives you what you need to do what he's asked you to do. And so, although it was logistically impossible, it wasn't impossible because Paul says to the Ephesians that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Terry, Terry, for Christmas one year, she got us that Ancestry 
So we did the saliva thing. She said, I was just hoping, you know, there was something exotic in you. And I'm just plain old vanilla, man. I mean, I just, there's nothing exotic in me. My family has been boring for centuries. We are blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's it. But before Jesus ever came to earth, he knew you were going to be born. And before you were ever born, he knew you were going to be in Albany, Georgia. And before you knew you were going to be in Albany, Georgia, he put Christ into your heart to look for him and to seek him and to find him. And then he put you on a mission. None of you are here by accident. None of what we do with Meet the Need in church planning is by accident. It is a part of the divine design of God that we would be prepared in advance for us to do this. I mean, God has not looked up and went, oh my goodness, America is just falling apart. Ooh, what are we going to do? He's already got what we're supposed to do. We're salt and light. That's us. That's our job. Oh, by the way, it was financially impossible. Israel's largely agricultural at the time. Very poor people. They live from day to day. They live for daily wages. It was financially impossible. They were poor. We, we are poor as a city. I mean, I don't need to rehearse that, but we are the fourth poorest city in America. But I can tell you, there are some cities that rank in the top ten that have begun to pray and seek God. You're going to hear about it some in the month of February. And God has begun to revive and restore those cities because the churches said, we need to step in and bring God into the equation. Not just looking to government for help, but looking to God for help. It was financially impossible. It's financially impossible on paper. It doesn't make sense on paper that we, in a year of a hurricane and three major storms in two years, can meet budget. It doesn't make sense that we give 100% of our pledges when most people would say, if you got 70%, you're in the top range. It makes no sense except for God. So we don't walk around saying, yeah, I'll tell you what, we can do anything. No, we can't. We can only do what God allows us and equips us to do and what we obey God to do. It's financially impossible. If we don't sacrifice, if we don't give, if we don't make adjustments, it's impossible. I love what Billy Graham said. God has given us two hands, one to receive with and the other to give with. We are not cisterns made for hoarding. We are channels made for sharing. Now, what has all that got to do with meet the need? Over a year ago, when God helped me to understand where he wanted us to go in the coming years, this is the statement that came out, and you're familiar with it. Prayer leads us to love God, grow together, serve others, and change the world. It's out of the atrium. Prayer leads us to love God and grow together and serve others and change the world. Jesus departed. What did he say? 
Did he say, run down to the bookstore and get a program? No, he said, go and pray. Everything about the Great Commission is initiated in prayer. Prayer leads to power. Everything about worship is initiated in prayer. Everything about growing together is initiated in prayer. Everything about serving is initiated in prayer. Everything about changing the world is initiated in prayer. Why? Because when you're praying, you can't duck this. You can't avoid it. It's right there. And God will put on our hearts what is on his heart. And that is a world. And so they came, they prayed, the Spirit came on them. Peter preached for 10 minutes, which tells me he wasn't a Baptist pastor. And 3,000 people were saved. And after that, they were baptized, which was a step of obedience for them to be baptized. Now, where in the world did they do that? How, you know, when you, you got to baptize 3,000 people, where do you do that? Well, it's not in just one of these. Here. This is a sign by the mikvahs, which are, are below the southern steps in Israel. So I just want to leave that up there for, for a minute. So this sign tells us why they went through these immersion pools. They were totally immersed. The southern steps of the temple wall is where people would walk up. The poorest of the poor would walk up. And they are, those steps are spaced so that they are short and long so that you don't just run up the steps. You kind of step up the steps because you're reminded by every step I'm moving toward the presence of God. And when they came out, they had to go down the steps the same way. At the bottom of those steps, we can go to the next one, were pools made out of stone with clean water. You couldn't even have the dust on your feet. Now, you had to go completely with your clothes off, and there were pools for men and pools for women, and we'll figure that out in eternity. But um, no mixed bathing. Uh, but you would go completely immersed to be cleansed externally before you walked in to the temple to offer your sacrifice. So in other words, in the Jewish system, you got right with God before you showed up to worship God. Hello. And you got right. You got clean on the outside, but it couldn't cleanse you on the inside. Now this is below the southern steps. Back in April, while our group was uh, on the top of the Temple Mount, I had about an hour and a half just by myself, and I literally walked by every cistern and every cleansing pool and every bit of ruins that go from one end of the Temple Wall to the other and the cleansing pools. That's one of those areas right there. I think we've got one more. There's an area down. You'll see all of this. Obviously, things have been built on top of them. But these cleansing pools existed at the southern steps. So the upper room is a little further up into Jerusalem. That's one that's dug out that dates back to that time. There at the upper room, Peter comes out. He preaches. 3,000 people are saved. Repent and be baptized. So where do they go? They go to the southern steps. Guess what's going on to the southern steps? It's in the public marketplace. 
I mean, they are in front of everybody declaring that Jesus is the Messiah and I have received him as my Lord and Savior. So you just think about it. If you're a middle school or a high school student, it's right where the buses stop and they're being baptized. If you work at P&G, it's right at the end of the parking lot before you walk in and you're being baptized. It was a public declaration that I am on the side of Jesus and he is who he says he is. They repented and they were baptized. That was a public witness. Now let's follow the progression, chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 in verse 5. Now there were many Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. So guess what God did? God said, I need to get the nations here so we can start quick. I need to get the nations here. I think in Sherwood we have somewhere between 18 and 20 nations represented in this church. God brings the nations so that the nations can go back and share with the nations. So we can share among people groups of which we have much in common. Verse 22, Peter's preaching. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up. All that says right there is man didn't kill Jesus. God sent him to die. It was not man's decision. It was God's decision. Now, verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now let me just stop right there for a minute and just say, if you've never been scripturally baptized, it doesn't save you. It is a witness that I have received Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, and I stand before a group of people to be immersed, the word baptized, in the Greek, means to dip, plunge, or immerse. It does not mean in any translation at any time to be sprinkled as a baby or to be baptized as a baby. It doesn't mean that you get baptized and that gets you saved. It does not mean in any accurate interpretation of Scripture that baptism is a requirement for salvation. Baptism is a requirement for the first step of obedience. Repent and show you have repented by being baptized. That's what Peter is saying to him. Verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. How were people being saved like that? You realize that means that that's a minimum 
That's a minimum of 365 people a year being saved and baptized. We've never hit that. We've never hit that. That's a minimum of that. But they were being saved to the point where within 15 years of the founding of the church, there were 100,000 members of the church at Jerusalem. And they were planting churches everywhere, all over the Roman Empire. They were going to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the gospel even made it to the household of Caesar. Now that's a great God. How did that happen? I'm going to tell you, it's right there in the text. A group of people who realized that they were nothing without Jesus got together and said, with Jesus and with the power of the Holy Spirit, as we pray, God will show us what we need to do. And we will do it. They were together. There was unity. They didn't look around and say, well, you're not in my socioeconomic class or you don't live in the right kind of neighborhood or you live in too good of a neighborhood or you've got a gated community and I don't even have a door on my house. They, they didn't get and compare each other. They said, we're coming together for one purpose, to do what Jesus told us to do, to take the gospel to the world. And so when we give and when we serve and when we love and when we invite people to come and be a part of our Bible study experiences, what we are doing is saying to the world, we're carrying out what they did in Acts chapter 1 and 2. We are not bogged down in denominational politics. We are not bogged down into politics. We are not bogged down in our preferences. We are set and sure that Jesus is the only hope of this world. And so we're going to plant churches and we're going to provide facilities and we're going to reach the next generation for Christ. Why? Because God wants us to do it. So I'm going to obey him. I'm going to do it. There's a sign out there in the atrium. It's a new one this week. Whoever wants the next generation the most will get them. As long as God gives me breath, I want the next generation. I don't know if you realize this, but there is nobody my age being born. That may come as a shock to some of you, but there's nobody my age being born. I mean, you don't go to the maternity ward at Phoebe and go, oh, look, a 65-year-old, 8 pounds, 12 ounces. That's how much a 65-year-old eats at a buffet, 8 pounds, 12 ounces. It is for those yet to be born and those that are in the shadow of this church at places like Sherwood Elementary right across the street from us and to every middle school and high school and to every neighborhood in this community and to the boys clubs and all the places where we find the next generation to say to them, we love you and we care and we want you to know Jesus. My dad uh, grew up in Monticello, Mississippi. Monticello, Mississippi is right down the road from Silver Creek, Mississippi, which is just down the road from New Hebron, Mississippi, which is just a little way from Prentice, Mississippi, and not far from Brookhaven. You know right where it is, right? <laughs> My dad grew up poor. He had uh, two brothers and a sister, 
and they live right out on the edge of town. My grandfather was a volunteer minister of music for 31 years in the First Baptist Church in Monticello, Mississippi. My dad's job growing up was to stoke the fire and to start the fire on cold mornings. And so every morning before everybody else got up, my dad's job was to get up, to go to the fireplace and stoke it to see if he could get the embers started to put on a little more kindling wood and get the fire going so that when the rest of the family got up, there would be a fire and the house would begin to warm. So if there was no fire, he had to start all over. That was his job. That's my job. Not physically. My job is to stoke the fires in your heart. That you do not grow cold or inconsistent or weary in sharing the fire of God that has once burned in your heart. My job is to poke you a little bit and to stir you up and to say, there's a world out there and there's a work out there. And if we work together, we can set this world on fire for Jesus Christ one more time. If we give, if we serve, if we worship, if we go, we can do it. Not because we're great. Because we're nothing. We're nothing. Roger Breland's dad used to say to him, Son, you ain't nothing but tater water. Now some of you that are more sophisticated are going to have to figure that out. What that means is you get water, you boil a potato, and then you pour the water out because it's not any good. He said, son, you ain't nothing but tater water. Listen, that's all I am too. I'm just tater water. Lord, if you just get a, something boiling inside of me, I pray that it'll bear some fruit Amen. and that you can use it for your glory.